This episode takes place in the Bahamas, and Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures knows all about the bonefish in this special corner of the world. Doug McKnight, uh, work here at Yellow Dog, Bahamas and Honduras program director. Doug's sole job is to make sure that you, as an angler, have the best time possible while chasing your fish of a lifetime. And he doesn't just send you to the same place every time. We're gonna go check out a new uh, new destination on Andros Island in the Bahamas tomorrow. What are, you, what are you hoping to go find down there? Anything we can, but it's gonna be kind of exploring some, some new water, hopefully, chasing big bonefish, knock on wood, maybe we maybe get a couple cracks at some resident tarpon, or God forbid, see a, see a permit. Um, and you know, nothing else. You know, maybe play around with some sharks and kudas if the weather's bad, or you know, there's always something to fish for. No matter the country or the species, you can always trust the pros at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. Okay, on to the show. Alrighty folks, welcome back to the DrakeCast. For those of you who tuned in last week, you'll know that we headed down to East End Lodge in Grand Bahama. I said, man, ain't nothing to do in this. Taking the candy from a baby. <laughs> this is how we do it. We had a great time on the water with Captain Cecil. Start casting. Go look. No, no, go, to, go cast straight 12 now. 12, 12. Come right at your 40 feet. Stop it. And Angler Bjorn Stromsness. My first bonefish, it was, it was here in Grand Bahama Island, not that far from where we're at now. Who runs a blog called Bonefish on the Brain. That was a decade ago, and you know, since then I've, I've really thought of few other fish besides, besides bonefish. If you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. Anyways, while in the Bahamas, we fished every environment imaginable. Grassy flats and somewhat sandy flats and muddy flats. <laughs> it's all a variation on a theme, right? So. And while doing so, we did manage to run into a few bonefish. It was, you know, first cast, the fish were all over it. They were eating immediately. They were fighting for it. And admittedly, we weren't always catching them. And then the next day, we still found the fish, but they just weren't eating. Regardless, we had a great time and the fishing overall was fantastic. And just about everyone I talked to credited the quality of this fishery to one major factor. I think that this area is very healthy. The Bahamas has probably the most pristine bonefish habitat, at least in the Western Hemisphere, and the largest bonefish habitat more than likely in the world. Um, just because of the amount, the amount of mangroves that we have, the amount of flats that we have, and it's all pristine for the, and basically, for the most part, untouched. Which is great. Good habitat, good fishing. But the ideal that the Bahamas has somehow managed to achieve didn't happen overnight. And the fisheries protection is far from over. In this episode, we're going to look at how the Bahamas became the world's favorite bone fishing destination, and the work being done to ensure that it stays that way. It's a story in five parts. But at the end, we'll have to confront the fact that we as anglers have a role to play in the future of Bahamian bonefish. Part 1. The Crusaders. Let's start by introducing a character. Justin Lewis, and I am the Bahamas Initiative Manager for BTT. For those of you who don't know, BTT is the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. And for brevity's sake, it's basically trout unlimited for saltwater flats fishing. As Bahamas initiative manager, that means I literally do everything for BTT in the Bahamas, but mainly focusing on our research projects, outreach and education, 
working with guides, anglers, and lodges, and then a little bit of fundraising. Justin is a native Bahamian, and apart from a few years of schooling in Canada and the UK, he's spent his entire life enjoying and working to protect the bonefish of the Bahamas. And what's your favorite part of all of that? Getting out and getting to different places around the Bahamas and meeting some really cool people along the way. But to really contextualize the work that Justin is doing in the Bahamas, we have to take a look at a fishery just a couple hundred miles to the west to understand what's at stake. We do not want to have a Florida Keys situation here in Bahamas. And could you give me a 30-second rundown of what the Florida Keys situation is for bonefish? So the Florida Keys, their population of bonefish has decreased by about 90%. The Florida Keys was the beginning of the flats fishery. It's one of the most famous flats fisheries in the world. But there's not very many bonefish left. And so many of the guides just don't target bonefish that much anymore. Um, they've had to shift to different fisheries. And this decline in bonefish numbers in the Keys is actually what led to the start of the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust some 20 years ago. And there are multiple reasons for that. There is loss of habitat in the Florida Keys. There's the poor water quality, which is getting a lot of press recently. And it's good that it's getting press because it's a big issue. And then there's also the issue of lack of larvae coming into the Florida Keys. We haven't found any um, um, bonefish larvae coming into the Keys. Moral of the story. My efforts in the Bahamas is primarily preventative. And our big slogan is healthy habitat equals a healthy fishery. If you don't have the habitat, you're not going to have the fish. Like we stated before, the greatest threat to bonefish is habitat loss and degradation. And what are you doing to combat these potential issues? What is BTT doing? BTT is a science-based conservation organization. If you don't have the science, it doesn't matter. So what we do is we work closely with anglers and guides using their, their local knowledge of the areas and then combine it with our scientific research. We collect what we call actionable knowledge. So this actionable knowledge can go directly into conservation efforts, especially habitat conservation. And this work has been going on in the Bahamas for a long time. And... I actually had a chance to meet someone who's been working on these issues since before Justin landed his first bonefish. They could tell 20 years ago something was going on with the bonefish. This is Harold Brewer. He lives in the Keys and currently sits on the board of directors for BTT. And he told me about some of the past work that's taken place in the Bahamas. We do a lot of research in the Bahamas. There are a lot of, a lot of bonefish over there. There's a lot of great unspoiled habitat over there. I'm going to guess we've tagged 12, 15,000 fish over there maybe over the last many years. When we finally discovered and videoed how they actually spawn uh, and how far some of the fish had traveled because we were able to recapture some tagged fish in the pre-spawning aggregation, and when we finally sorted that out and took our findings to the Bahamian government, I was part of that trip. It was amazing. We had a room full of various ministers of different Bahamian governmental departments. We showed them the video of the fish. That's resulted in the creation of several um, protected zones uh, that can't be fished, can't, uh, can't be developed, and uh, that's been very, very useful. Justin is also working on these sorts of issues. Right now there's this big push to get a bunch of protected areas around the Bahamas and in 2015, there were five new protected areas put in place and one park expansion put in place, in part because of the work that we had done along with our collaborators. And while down in the Bahamas, I did have a chance to visit one of these protected areas. 
where are we and where are we going and what's the significance? Well, we're out here in the fishery of, um, you know, near the lodge. We're within, I'll just say we're within 20 miles of the lodge, give or take. And we're, we're motoring close towards a blue hole. This is some tape of East End Lodge owner Rob Nair and guide Simeon Higgs. So a blue hole, the way it was explained to me was during, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, the oceans were much lower. And the topography of Grand Bahama Regardless of the geological composition, this site and others like it around the Bahamas are super important for the health of bonefish. Rob went on to explain that this exact blue hole was a very large aggregate spawning site for bonefish. While bonefish spend much of the year feeding on the flats, during their spawning season, fish come from miles around to this small section of ocean. How many fish could you see thousands, in this area? Thousands of fish. Wouldn't you agree, Simeon? Yeah, between five, five, or maybe 10,000. Yeah, between Holy five. Holy cow. Yeah, there's a lot of fish. It could be stretched like 50 or 60 feet wide, but 70, 80 feet long. Um, you're in about probably um, 10 or 12 feet of water, and it's from the top to the bottom, nothing but bonefish. It's just an amazing sight to see 2,000 bonefish swimming around. It's absolutely incredible. Once the fish have gathered, the females are gulping air. Now, no one is exactly sure why the females come to the surface for air, but the general theory has something to do with it helps them prepare to spawn. Maybe it helps them get in the mood or it dislodges the eggs. Who knows? Uh, once they gulp air, they go with the males out into deeper depths where they do vertical spawning. And what uh, is vertical spawning? Well, I'm not a marine biologist, but uh, they, they, they swim parallel to each other down. And as they're going down, once they get to, I guess, a certain... And when I spoke on the phone with Justin, he explained that this protected pre-spawn aggregation area... There's no fishing for only bonefish. Which is a super important regulation because... I've seen where there have been 10 boats fishing on top of a spawning aggregation and those fish took off and didn't come back for the rest of the time that they were supposed to be there. So we don't know if they were even able to successfully spawn. Shouldn't the sight of 2,000 bonefish gathered together be enough? Why do you have to fuck with them? To be honest, the anglers don't know. I'm putting the onus on the guys, and I'm also telling the anglers about it. But I'm really, really, really focused a lot with working with the guys. And we include them a lot in the research that we're doing so they understand what's going on. And then it helps them, help them want to take ownership, especially of getting, helping getting areas protected. So that last pushback in 2015 to get bonefish habitat protected, it was the guys, the bonefishing guys that were leading that. And we just helped back them up with our scientific research that they participated in. While Harold explained BTT's past work in the Bahamas, and Justin outlined the work that is currently going on, Justin and BTT are also looking towards the future. The next part is education. So all the science that we're collecting, all the knowledge that we're collecting from the guys and the anglers, we put into our education efforts. So we've been really pushing our outreach and education program, talking to anglers and guides, of course, because they're actively involved in the fishery, but also expanding that to working with uh, school kids and then the general public and educating them about the importance of bonefish and the flats and then the threats that they face. And the other more important thing is, especially with the kids, getting them out on the water getting them out, seeing what a flat is, experience a flat, seeing a bonefish, touching a bonefish. And then also at the same time, a lot of times what happens is they see 
those human threats that I talk about with them, like you, you see, um, you see washed up nets on the shore, or you'll see um, some habit, some habitat degradation. It really all come together for them. They realize, okay, this is something that we should be concerned about and need to protect. While I was staying at East End Lodge, I ran into a conservation officer and I asked him how their education process is going because basically they've been going around telling people to conk regulations and his response was something along the lines of, nobody wants to be told what they can or can't do and it's not going that well. And so there is this mechanism in place, but people don't want to follow the rules according to him. Have you found some pushback like that? I mean, it's great that you're putting these conservation areas in place that you can't fish here, but unless there's buoys around it or somebody sitting on shore with a loudspeaker yelling at people, are people going to listen to these regulations? Well, our main focus is, is habitat conservation and to help protect these areas from unsustainable development because that's the greatest threat to these fish. And so the education efforts that we've been doing, especially on the bonefish side, has definitely helped. We've noticed there's a difference in recent in mentality of things, especially once you put the number on it that bonefishing is worth in excess of $141 million to the Haiti economy, especially in small out-island communities. So, yeah, that's their bread and butter. They need to protect that. When you come to more commercial fisheries, that becomes a little bit different story. It's just, it's just the push for education. That's why we focus a lot on the kids. because the older people, they're going to go, they're, they're, they're not going to be around forever, but the kids are the ones that are coming up. It's the youth that you really need to educate, but at the same time, educate the adults as well. Part two, best practice makes perfect. Justin's work with the bonefish in the Bahamas goes beyond education and habitat protection and actually has to do with catching some fish. And thankfully, while I was down in the Bahamas, I had a chance to get out on the flats with Justin. While we were out there, he gave me a rundown of another project he's running. A best handling practice starts before you even before you even catch the fish. Bonefish best handling practices are a list of steps you can take while targeting these fish to reduce their mortality. To better explain the importance of properly handling bonefish, let's hear from Harold again. Okay, a common side effect of um, when you're fighting them over an extended period of time is that they wind up at the boat exhausted. And if you take them out of the water for photographic opportunities and expose them to the air at that point, even for just a short, very, very short period of time, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, it dramatically reduces their chance of survival. I've always compared it to, you know, if you're an athlete, you run a 440 or something like that, and you're trying to win, what if somebody put a plastic bag over your head the minute you cross the finish line and left it there for 15 seconds or 30 seconds or something like that? But the bonefish best handling practices extend beyond the basics of keep them wet. But it goes farther than that because to continue that analogy, it would also be and then releases 14 Rottweilers that haven't eaten in a week from a cage that want to kill you. Absolutely. Well, when you when you put those fish back in the water after that experience and you think they swim off, you know, they're barely conscious. They're swimming almost reflexively. They're dead on their feet, really. Now that we understand what these bonefish are facing in the ocean, Let's hear Justin go down the list of the best handling practices. You gotta debarb your hook, minimize its handling time once you once you hook the fish. 
Also, it's very important for you to use minimum 12 pound test tippet. I primarily use 15 pound test tippet because you can put pressure on that fish, still get a good fight of the fish, bring them in as fast as possible. Once you get that fish in into the boat, keep that fish in the water, handle them in the water. If you're, if you're gonna handle them with your hands, make sure you have clean, wet hands. A lot of people wear sun gloves, take off your sun gloves because that removes the protective uh, slime that they have on them. That And then if you do want to get a picture, which a lot of people do, regardless of if it's your biggest bonefish, first bonefish, whatever, make sure that that fish stays in the water. Once to get your cameraman ready, once your cameraman raises, lift that fish out of the water. Don't stand the boat with the fish because it doesn't do justice to fish and it's not good for the fish. Lift that fish out of the water, lean over the side of the boat or stand in the water. Take that picture, put that fish right back down in the water and you release that fish. It's the first 10 minutes uh, post-release is the most important and that and that is determined by how well you handle that fish during the fight and while you're releasing that fish. And so what would you say to somebody who's coming down to catch a few bonefish and just they want all those Instagram, all those Facebook likes. Don't take a picture of every fish. Only take a picture of like a really nice fish. One or two really nice fish. Don't take a picture of every fish. Best thing to do is get that fish into the boat, release that fish right away in the water. And right after Justin finished explaining these guidelines, Bjorn landed a little bonefish and showed us the proper technique. So just now Bjorn um, has been uh, casting at this one very uncooperative school of fish for a while now. Finally hooked a, a nice fish after losing a couple others. Um, right. uh, once he hooked the fish, fought it pretty well, and a shark came in. Uh, Bjorn was smart enough to scare the shark off, brought it up to us. Um, we got a couple shots following best handling practices, made sure there's no predators around, released that fish safely back into the school. And then right after, uh, a few sharks came in, trying to see what was going on. To decrease the chances of the recently released fish falling prey to one of the sharks, Cecil grabbed a fly rod and began pestering the predators, sometimes landing the fly on their backs to keep them occupied and away from Bjorn's bonefish. What a lot of times what happens as soon as a bonefish is hooked, they start releasing stress pheromones, which uh, sharks um, can pick up on. Uh, and we were able to scare the sharks off as well so they couldn't get to those bonefish and track down that bonefish. That's a big concern amongst best handling practices for bonefish. You know, you get it in quick, don't take it out of the water, so it has the best chance of survival yes. once it's released back. Yes, absolutely. Justin went into more detail during our phone call. So we did a bunch of different studies looking at different handling practices and how it affects fish and here. That's how we were able to come up with our set of current best handling practices, which minimizes bonefish mortality up to 60% if it's followed correctly. But he also had a bit more stinging critique of our current fly fishing culture. My thing is Facebook kills more fish than anything else, Facebook and Instagram. Because you see people, I like to call it uh, basically your, 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 your magazine kind of shot holding that fish standing up out of the water. And that's not good for the fish. And we're trying to just get the word out there. And I'm always just going around to the lodge, just talking to the guys about it, talking to Angus about it, really putting it home that you have to follow best handling practices. When we come back, we're gonna get back on the water with Bjorn and Cecil and get into a little bit of a tough over our roles and responsibilities as anglers. So if you like drama, make sure to stick around. This episode of the Drake Cast is made possible by our friends at Deli Fresh Design. Yeah, we're at the Deli Fresh Design shop. We're here in Denver, Colorado. We're in a warehouse, so we take raw materials, recycled sailcloth, and then turn them into fly fishing gear. And right now, Deli Fresh Design is running a promo for listeners of the Drake Cast. 
head on over to their website, delifreshdesign.com, and enter promo code capital Drake 20, D-R-A-K-E 20 at the checkout for 20% off soft good products like there is fly wallet. And then from there, we've got the beer koozie. These are made out of either Cordura or you could get it in sailcloth as well as repurposed waders. And oh, so much more. Find them online at delifreshdesign.com. Finally, we couldn't do this without support from the folks at Scott Fly Rods. When I was down in the Bahamas, I used a Scott Meridian that cast true and fought hard. But you don't have to just take my word for the quality of these rods. Here's John Duncan, the owner of Telluride Angler, on why he trusts Scott Fly Rods. Scott Fly Rods are so compelling because new Scott Rods are always the product of pure design. When Jim Barchi designs a new fly rod, it's because he's come up with something that's actually better for fishermen. And that's why, at any given time, the best fly rod in the world in any given category, like trout or saltwater, is very likely to be a Scott. For more information on how to get one of these great instruments for yourself, head on down to your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. Alrighty, back to the show. Part three, the catch. Before the break, we talked with Justin Lewis of the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust about how to properly target, fight, and handle a bonefish. And all of those practices are great in theory, but what happens on the water can sometimes be a little bit messier. I see the, I can see the bonefish there. But I was looking out about 10. Still and to explain why I say this, let's play some tape from my time on the water with Bjorn and Cecil. Yeah, yeah, but getting ready to start casting now. We're down 10. We're about 50 feet. Barbs were crimped, our tippet was strong, and eventually. Good. Strip. Strip long, long, long. There you go. You can see him just. It wasn't the world's largest bonefish that Bjorn caught, but it was a fish nonetheless. After a quick fight, Bjorn grabbed the fly and released it without ever touching it or taking it out of the water. But within seconds of that fish being released, a huge silver torpedo shot out of the depths and chopped the bonefish in half. You do everything like absolutely right and this bonefish is still gonna get eaten because yes. here, are the things, here are the things I did right. I, I put the stick on that fish. I got him in fast. Right. I didn't play him and I didn't even touch him. I grabbed the fly and flipped it out. He was out of the water for about a half second. And then within what, three seconds, five seconds was eaten by a shark and what, and a barracuda. I don't know. They were fighting over it. Bjorn is kind of laughing here, but none of us enjoyed seeing that happen. Cecil told us that unfortunately, those occurrences are just a hazard of the job. For me as a guide, I feel like a, a bonefish need at least about, I'll say 30 minutes, gain the strength back to really to get away from a shark. Anything in short than that, I think the shark is gonna get him. Yes. How often do you think that happens, whether you see it right off the boat or it happens within the next 15 minutes after releasing a fish? Because if you release a bonefish into the water within about 10 to 15 minutes from you know catching that fish if a shark come around the shark is going to get that fish and i'll say the shark will get about 80 percent of those fish if the shark is on the flat with a bit of bit of bone fish the bonefish don't stand a chance if a shark is swimming around because most of the time if i fish into a large part of fish and the shark is around 
you know, most of the time I like to just move on because I know it's just like you feeding the shark. And I asked Justin about this during our phone call. In an area where there are predators, like what percentage of these fish do you think die even if you do everything right? If there are predators, it can be, it can, it's, it's, I think it's, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's really, really high compared to if there is an area where there's either no or low predators, it's more likely that that fish is going to survive. Back on the boat, I asked Cecil how he thinks this seemingly unavoidable shark feeding could be minimized. You know, I sit down and think about it for a bit, and the way how I think it could be, you know, it's, it needs to be done is... You know, I tell the guy, a lot of the guys, like, I mean, which way that we could put live whales in these boats. So, you know, we could hold the bonefish, at least, say, at least for an half an hour before we release the fish back into the water. Justin had some thoughts as well. We have done studies on using live whales, and we found that it definitely increases that fish's chance of survival because, um, one, that fish is in a, in a contained area with good water flow, and it's just calming down and relaxing and at the same time you're probably continuing pulling down the flat and you're moving away from where that shark was and that whatever uh the tent trail that the bonefish releases when they're stressed um it's cut off and so once you've went after like 20 minutes you release that fish and that fish is perfectly fine and and obviously you're going to release it away from where any predators are and so actually lots of guys in the florida keys do that as well and i know there's a guy in the turks and caicos that does that as well but the problem is, if your boat doesn't already have a built-in live well, this isn't really possible. Yeah, so it'd be, it'd be really expensive to retrofit a boat to put a, a live well in. You can use a Yeti if you want to fill it with a clipper, but the likeliness of uh, someone doing that is it's very low. One thing that I haven't read about anywhere is whether or not it's ethical to fish in an area where you've already lost a bonefish post-release. Like, what are BTT's opinions on that concept? Well, if you lose a fish to a shark or a barracuda, don't fish in that area. Like, don't continue fishing in that area. Move to another spot because that shark or barracuda will just continue following you and more than likely just pick off the fish that you're releasing. Because we found that if you're in an area that has a high or even medium concentration of, of, of predators, that fish is going to hit, is going to get whacked. Uh, whether you follow best line practices or not. Part four, the confrontation. Back on the boat, while I stood near the polling platform and chatted with Cecil, Bjorn picked up his rod and headed to the bow. I guess let it sit, let it sit. So what are you targeting right now? Okay. So here's a question, is this bonefish gonna be eaten? Not if we're more careful with it. But didn't you just say that you did everything right and it got nailed? Yeah, I didn't know that there were sharks so close. But what would you have done differently? I could have revived the fish a little bit more. I could have held him um, so that the, the uh, so that he could have had a little more captain and stuff. Is there proof that holding the fish next to the boat no. is going to help him? No, I don't think it is. I don't know if you guys can go as far as saying, like, if there's sharks around, you probably shouldn't be fishing because there's X chance that that fish isn't going to make it. 
Would you guys ever go as far as saying that? Or is that going to be left up to the angler and to the guide? That's a tough one. I don't know if you want to put that one in there. (laughs) (laughs) These are the questions that keep me up at night, you know, like, and you guys can say that you aren't quite ready to go that far, but acknowledging that those problems do exist. Or you can just not talk about it. That's totally fine. Let's not talk about that one. After our little tiff, Bjorn made a couple half-hearted casts before reeling it all in. He was visibly pissed at me for calling him out. Where there are sharks and where there are barracuda, there are bonefish and vice versa. I mean, that's what they're eating. For sure, for sure. If you're not going to fish for bonefish anytime there were sharks and barracudas, you wouldn't do a lot of fishing. No, but if, if there is an example where what we're trying to avoid just played out in front of us, I'm not going to go back in. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But it's a completely arbitrary line. But later on at the lodge, after catching a few more bonefish where sharks were not present, Bjorn and I chatted about what had happened on the water. You you should be thinking about conservation. And, you know, the thing that comes to mind on this trip especially is having a bonefish eaten five seconds after releasing it, thinking that the fish was healthy, thinking I did everything right and still lost that bonefish. And I might have lost one today, um, but I don't know because I didn't, it swam off fine um, and it was not a long fight. Um, and I, you know, minimized air exposure, but a couple minutes later, way out in the middle of the lake where I couldn't really see what was happening, something was being chased. And odds are that was my bonefish. So, you know, it does bring home, you do have, you do have an impact. You know, I didn't, try to kill two bonefish this trip and I might have even killed more than that you know and it wasn't because I was doing a gripping grin and having the fish out of water for two minutes I didn't have the fish out of water at all uh so you really just have to you really have to be aware and you know I think we uh, agree that you know if you have a fish eaten by a, a barracuda or a shark or in our case in my case both uh at the same time um you know maybe maybe that's not the the flat to fish you know which can be hard if you're if you've traveled 2000 miles and you only have a certain amount of time um but that's probably the right decision to make this should right. be recording and we got further into this issue on a quick phone call that i recorded this morning okay uh, i hope the, the sound quality is okay cuz i'm driving And I was actually standing in the parking lot of a fly shop. So just to set this up, we're talking about the tape of losing that fish and then hopping back in there and fishing for it. And I think I probably painted you in a pretty negative light and painted myself in a rather holier-than-thou light, which is not what I'm going for. So you sent me a great email that brought up some great questions and some points about how gray this line is of what's appropriate. Can you just restate that? You know, I think back to a couple days before this incident where, you know, I hooked the fish out of a school. There were predators around. They were certainly sniffing the bonefish. They started following, I think, one of the bonefish. And and one of the guys and I ran after the uh, shark and and it, you know, kind of backed off. You know, that fish didn't get eaten. But they were certainly there. And then, you know, we continued fishing to that school. And you even caught a fish out of that that school. Um, So... 
you know, what we had one day was failed predation and on another day successful predation. But, you know, the, the line is, is pretty great. If I could take it all back, I probably wouldn't have cast those fish. They were, they were really spooky. They were obviously frightened. You know, you can look back on it now and say, well, they were, they were frightened by the predators. Hindsight 2020, I would have done things differently and i think you also brought up another really good point of like we fished for six days and had a great time and i'm choosing this six minute episode of the worst part of it because of course it makes the best story and i just want i don't want to paint bjorn stromsness of bonefish on the brain like you've obviously dedicated a lot of time energy and money to these fish and written about conservation and written about the regulations in the bahamas and so Moral of the story is you're a good dude, and I just happen to have the microphone recording during a specific negative instant. Yeah, and, you know, I think that the main thing that that you can do to control for, you know, this sort of thing to happen is, is good handling practices. And we actually had good handling practices all week. You know, that you will not find a picture of us on that trip holding a fish out of water for a photo op because it didn't happen because we didn't do that most of the fish we didn't get pictures of we did most of the things right we modeled pretty good behavior i had this one you know lapse of judgment um that ended up not you know it didn't end up killing fish but you know it could have but you know for the most part we did things right um but it you know can get gray out there that's the that's the problem and i too cast at a school of bonefish when we knew predators were around i'm just as guilty of these practices as anyone but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be asking these questions despite our hashtag keep them wets and our btt best handling practices catch and release fly fishing is still a blood sport and we're always gonna lose fish heck i'm sure at least one of the fish that i released was eaten and no one btt included wants to really restrict the sport. But there is a line to draw as to what we're comfortable with. And once you personally draw that line, stick with it. Part five, the future. That took a darker turn there, but I want to emphasize that there are a lot of good things going on in the Bahamas. There are many people that have dedicated a lot of time, money, and energy to the future of the fishery and the country's well-being. Harold is one of them. You were just describing a little vignette of uh, presenting the evidence of bonefish spawning in the Bahamas to the Bahamian government, and that was a good feeling. But that was after years of work, after years of involvement with this organization. What got you into this from the beginning? Like, you, you retired, you, it's, you, you had a long career, worked hard for a long time, you finally are done with work, and you jump right into something like this that obviously you care about and spend a lot of time on. What, what caused you to do that? I went, um, I went on a, a trip to the Bahamas with some of the long-term members of this organization, and I... I fished with a group that knew a different set of things than I knew about fishing and talked about it in different ways, and I just got interested in it and became convinced that I could help. Uh, it changed me, really. It changed me a lot. It's been good. It's 
It's been very good. not just making a difference though it's uh it was a mission that needed to be done and knowing what you know are, are you hopeful or are you nervous about the future of bonefish and the bahamas in general i'm hopeful because we're not going to stop to protect these fish in their habitats and the, and the fishery. That's good. We need more people like you. And we have a lot. We have a lot of good people. We have a lot of good people supporting us. And so, let's say somebody enjoys bonefish, enjoys permit, and enjoys tarpon. Uh, why should they become a BTT member? If you enjoy bonefish, uh, tarpon, permit, and the habitats they live in, you should become a member of BTT because if we don't have if we don't have funds, we can't do the work that we do. And we need that support from everybody who fishes um, in those fisheries. This has been great. All right, Elliot. Yep, take it easy. Yeah, man. There's quite a few thank yous that must be acknowledged for this episode. First of all, Cecil and Rob at East End Lodge, thanks for having me. Bjorn, thanks for taking me with you. But next time, let's go chase that other fish that we both seem to have on our brain. Meet you on the Babine. Justin Lewis and Harold Brewer, thanks so much for the work you do and for the hospitality that you showed me in your respective homes. And finally, many thanks to Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, Scott Flyrods, and Deli Fresh Design for making this episode possible. For more information on all of the above, please visit our website, drakemag.com. Okay, before we go, a quick peek at the next episode. Yo, yo. Hey, Big T. How's it going down there? Any action? Yeah, a couple reds and a bunch of pinks and no silvers. All the silvers are nose down. Cool. Keep getting after it. Nah, I'm going to call it. I'm going to come in. Bugs are driving me shit, and it's hot. Episode number 47 is going to take a look at the life of an Alaskan fishing guide. We'll hear some stories, complain about clients, and just try to capture a day in the life of a fish wrangler in the last frontier. Anyways, thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast. <laughs>